God, I pray that you would use your word to speak clearly to your people. I pray that you would break through the clouds of our misunderstanding to be able to teach us truly what you have for us as your people. I pray that you would teach us through scripture how we can follow your son faithfully every day of our lives. We pray this in the name of Christ, asking for the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, my brother-in-law, Chris, has a serious disadvantage uh, at family gatherings, and the disadvantage is this. He did not grow up in Glen Allen, Alaska. Uh, normally, this would not be a, a major disadvantage, but when it comes to uh, Bauer family gatherings, it is a pretty significant disadvantage because uh, the Bauer family has eight members of it, six kids and two adults, who feel this very strong connection to this small town in Alaska. They, they grew up there. They, they raised their family together. They, this is something that's a very uh, close part of, of who they are. Uh, Chris officially joined the family two years after I officially joined the family, and usually if you're the second in-law, uh, you've had some of the kind of uh, awkwardness kind of uh, broken down for you. So uh, usually by the time a second in-law is added, uh, the family has a little bit less um, sort of uh, in-language, in-group language, and, and they don't talk the same way that they've realized that there's someone who didn't grow up uh, alongside of them who's uh, next to them. But the disadvantage is that I, too, am from Glen Island. Alaska. So rather than just having eight people who have this strong connection to this hometown, poor Chris had nine people uh, to deal with, and he was the only one who didn't grow up in this particular town. So you can imagine poor Chris sitting there at the table feeling increasingly isolated and lost as someone would make reference to, say, uh, fast eddies, and everyone else would laugh. And he would be sitting there thinking, I have no idea what they're talking about. Or someone would say something about Kenny Lake, and then everyone else would groan because uh, we have this shared experience of what Kenny Lake means and what that's about. Or we'd talk about stopping at Eureka on the way to Anchorage, or climbing Gunsight, or going and, and camping at Tangle Lakes, or going to Liberty Falls, all these different places, and he's got the same look that you have. What on earth are they talking about? Because there's this shared experience, this, this, this uh, uh, sameness that the nine of us had, and, and here he is having an impossible time trying to keep up with the conversation. All these place names, not to mention all the family names and the people that accompany them that are so familiar to nine other people in the room, and then poor Chris having an incredibly impossible time trying to keep up with the conversation. Now, since then, it's a little bit easier for him. He has spent a summer in Alaska now, and we've added a few more in-laws, so he's not the only one who's not in the in-crowd now. So it's gotten a little bit easier for him. But the point is that it's really hard uh, for us to keep up with a conversation when so many pieces of background information are assumed and shared by everyone else. And really, that's one of the challenges of reading a biblical letter like the one we have in front of us this fall. The the book of 1 Corinthians that we've been learning from together is an actual letter. It's a real letter written by a real person named Paul to a real church in the ancient city of Corinth, and, and these people had a relationship. Paul had preached the gospel to them. He had told them the good news of Jesus. He had lived among them. He had discipled them and grown them up to understand what it means to to be a follower of Christ. So they have this relationship already established. And then what we see is two letters, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, that are part of a much larger correspondence between Paul and this church. So this can make it really difficult for us uh, to uh, keep up with the conversation at times. The challenge is that not only do we only have one side of the conversation, Paul's letters, 
and also that we only have part of the conversation, a few of what looks like at least four letters, but also we don't have the same cultural background and life experiences that they would have assumed and shared uh, together. Now, we can do a couple things with that, right? It's possible for us to just throw up our hands and say, well, we're never going to know what this is talking about. Or we could think, well, this is just totally irrelevant to our lives today. But as, as Christians, we believe that, that God inspired the writers of the Bible so that we can truly know who God is, so that we can truly find out who we are, and so that we can truly find out what it means to be a faithful follower of God in the world. And that means that this letter is actually very meaningful for us. It's very important for us. And so we have to do the hard work of understanding it, even when we come to a challenging passage. And we have a challenging passage before us this morning. So what we're going to do, rather than throwing up our hands or just kind of disregarding it and moving past it, is to try to understand it so that we can better know how to live in obedience to the truth that God has revealed. So the text is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll do verses 2 through 16. Um, it's found on page 1135 of the Pew Bibles. You're going to want to have this uh, in front of you as we uh, proceed this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. Uh, we're going to take this in three parts today. First, we're going to look at what is being said, and then we're going to try to discern why that is being said, and then uh, to look at how we can apply uh, this truth today. So let's look at first at what is being said. Starting in verse 2, Paul says this, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Okay, now Paul starts this off with a commendation. He says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. In other words, they're doing something right. They're holding on to the traditions here. Now, quick note on that. Traditions is a word that for most of us doesn't carry a lot of authority. Maybe you have a tradition in your family that you put up the Christmas tree on the Friday after Thanksgiving, but it's not really an authoritative kind of a thing. You know that if you put it up on Saturday or if you wait a week and do it the next Friday, your world isn't going to crumble. It's not going to be something devastating that calls into question your character. It's just that you've decided to do something different than the tradition. That's not tradition like Paul's using it here. Tradition here is in the sense of what has been passed on from those who are with Jesus, the apostles, to the church. That's what traditions means in the sense that he's talking about here. So this isn't something that we can just kind of quickly pass off as unimportant. This is something that's crucial for us to hear and to understand. So they're doing something right in the church in Corinth here, which is a good thing. We've seen a lot of things they haven't done right so far in the book. Now they're doing something right. They're holding on to the traditions that Paul and the other apostles have passed on to them. That's a good thing. But there's, at the same time, a little bit of a corrective that they need. They need to understand that Christians are, as all humans, we are created in distinction as men and women, and God has ordered these distinctions in a particular way. So that, as Paul says here, the head, the spiritual head of a man is Christ. The spiritual head of a woman is 
her husband, this is probably talking about husbands and wives in particular, the same word is used for husband and man, uh, wife and uh, woman, when they're put together, typically the Bible's talking about them in conjunction. Uh, so that's what we're going to uh, be working on throughout here, but it doesn't make that big of a difference if it's uh, husband and wife or man and woman. But he's saying that the spiritual head then of a woman is man. The spiritual head of Christ is God himself. So there's a particular ordering that God has worked out uh, within creation. Now, the Bible is very clear that men and women are equal before God. Men and women are created in the image of God as male and female, and and we are equally redeemed in Christ. So this isn't talking about uh, non-equality or disequality, whatever that word would be. This isn't talking about not being equals. This is about being created in distinction and being given distinct roles here. So while there is a very clear unity, there's also a very clear uh, distinction here. And the husband, in particular, is the spiritual head of the wife. So Paul uses that then, the idea of spiritual headship, as a play on words to what we do with our physical heads, our actual things that we put on uh, top of our heads here. So he's saying that that needs to play out then in how the Corinthians uh, worship God together as a, a church community. So when a man prays or prophesies, he does it with his head uncovered. He says that if a man covers his head, that can actually bring disgrace to his spiritual head, to Christ. But on the other hand, for a woman to pray or to prophesy with an uncovered head, that would be for her to bring dishonor or disgrace to her spiritual head, which is her husband. In other words, what we're doing with our physical heads, if we put something on it or don't put something on it, actually can bring honor or dishonor to our spiritual head. There's a connection here between our physical heads and our spiritual heads because of the distinction that God has created us. Now, by the way, the covering here could refer to an actual physical, physical covering like a hat or a shawl, or it could simply be talking about uh, longer hair done up in a particular way. As we look at verse 15 later in the chapter, we'll see that. Uh, presumably, the Corinthians would have known exactly what Paul was talking about right off the bat. But Paul's going to continue to build his argument here. Verse 7, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. So Paul now is continuing the argument by pointing back to the way that God has created us. And if you look back at the creation account in Genesis chapter 2, you see that, that God made Adam, the first man, first, and then he made uh, Eve, the first woman, from a part of Adam. So there's a sense in which he is created first, so he is the image and glory of God, and then she is created second, taken from him, and also created for him. He's, it's not, uh, the Bible says at the end of Genesis 2, it's not good for man to be alone, and so a woman is created in that sense for him. They belong together. So in light of this uh, creation reality, Paul is building the idea that, that man is the image and glory of God and that woman is the glory of man. Now again, this doesn't mean that woman is not created in the image of God. Genesis one twenty seven says that men and women are created in the image of God as male and female. So women too share in the image of God. They're created in the image of God. But the particular point he's making here is about the distinct roles that God has created men and women for. Now, Uh, In this differentiation, women should have a sign of authority over their heads. That's what he's talking about here in verse 10. It's for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head. And then he says it's because of the angels. 
Now, this is another one of those phrases that's not immediately obvious to us what he's talking about, but probably what he's talking about is the idea uh, in the early church in particular that angels watched over the worship, uh, the human worship of God. And so they had a particular concern that humans would rightly worship God, and that should play out then in this uh, distinct roles that God has created men and women for. Now, lest we get the wrong idea about this differentiation, Paul clarifies verses 11 and 12. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. So he's been saying here that men and women are distinct, and yet we belong together. We need each other. So yes, Adam was formed first, and Eve was formed from him, and yet now that order is reversed, where every single man now is born from a woman. But the important part to to realize in all of this is that everything comes from God. So Paul closes out his section now by again referring back to the practice and the distinction that he set up here. Verses 13 through 16. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. I decided I'd better get a haircut last night, lest my hair was disgracefully long. So I can thank my wife for that. So what Paul's doing here, he's pointing back to the common cultural practice of the day. Men tend to have shorter hair, and women tend to have longer hair. And of course, this isn't universally true, and Paul would have known that this was not universally true. There are examples even in the Bible of men who take a Nazarite vow, a particular kind of vow, and grow their hair out, and they never cut it. Think of Samson. He's probably the most famous of those people. So there are some men who do wear longer hair, but the more common practice is for women to have longer hair and for men to have shorter hair. So then he uses this broad uh, cultural ob- ob- uh, observation of the, the sort of normal way that things play out to build the same case, that, that Christians in our worship should maintain the distinctions that God has created in us between men and women. A woman shouldn't try to look like a man. A man shouldn't try to look like a woman. God has created us distinct. He has given us distinct roles, and we should not only maintain those, but we should also celebrate those, and that should be reflected in the way that we gather and worship together. So all that to to say, this is what's being said here. Christian men and women should reflect our God-given distinction that he's created us for as we come and we gather and we worship. Now we go from what is being said to why is this being said. So we have to think clearly and understand, seek to understand why Paul is talking about this. He's talking about the practice of of head covering in the context of worship being something that can bring glory or can bring dishonor or shame. So to us, head coverings don't really mean much. So we have to ask the question, why is Paul treating them so seriously here? Well, head coverings communicated something in the, the culture of Corinth. This is true whether Paul's simply talking about a length of hair or whether he's talking about an actual covering or a shawl or something like that. So uh, the way that a, a man would, would uh, interact in worship, that would attire himself in worship, that would actually communicate something uh, in the culture of the day. So for example, if a man was preaching or praying with a head covered, 
those in the culture might assume that he was trying to conduct worship in the same way that the pagan Roman priests would conduct worship. They felt like they had to cover their heads when they were offering sacrifices. And there, there can't be a confusion here for Christian preachers to have that same kind of a mindset. Or if he's talking about hair, the same thing applies. A man who grew his hair out might be assumed to be trying to look like a woman. Or he might be uh, suspected of uh, homosexual behavior. And again, that's not something that's fitting for someone who is leading worship in a Christian context. So as we start to look at the cultural cues, we start to make sense of why Paul says that it could be a disgrace or a shame for a man or a woman to have uh, the wrong kind of attire, the wrong kind of uh, thing over their head during a worship service. So for women, too, what they did with their hair could bring shame or disgrace, or it could bring honor and glory. So for a woman to have her hair cut off, Paul says, would be a disgrace to her. And in a Jewish context, a shaved head was actually the symbol, that was the sentence that was put on a woman who had been convicted of being unfaithful to her husband. That's a sign of disgrace toward her husband and in the community. And in a Greek context, a woman with shorter hair might be uh, considered to be an indicator that she was in a lesbian relationship. Again, this would be a dishonor to her husband or if she was unmarried to the Christian community. And a head covering, too, communicated something. To wear hair loose or flowing in this kind of a context and not done up a certain way or under a shawl could be considered a sign of sexual availability or sexual promiscuity. And there were actually religious connotations to this as well. Some of the pagan priestesses in their uh, different roles of worship and things like that would throw off their hair coverings and have their hair kind of loose and wild in sort of a frantic frenzy of prophecy to show that they kind of transcended the, uh, the bounds of sexuality. So there are lots of different cultural things that could be stirred up by uh, simply what you do with your physical head. Now, it's, possible, it's impossible for us, uh, from our cultural distance, to know exactly which of these things Paul has in mind because he doesn't spell them out clearly for, in a way that we can understand. But for sure, the Corinthians would have understood what he was talking about. And in any case, uh, the underlying issue comes down to the same thing. Uh, evangelical New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg summarizes it well when he says this, What the Corinthians did with their heads mattered because of either the sexual or the religious implications of their appearance— or both. And this starts to really bring the importance of the issue of head covering uh, to focus. See, this is about communicating the right messages uh, in the way that we worship together. And in particular, we have to protect against anything that would communicate either sexual immorality or idolatry, the worship of other gods. And as you look at the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll see that these have been two of the major themes throughout the book so far. And the church has not done well on either of these things. The church hasn't done well to protect the sexual purity of the Christian community. We saw this earlier in the book when, when one guy who was in the church was having sex with his stepmother and the church wasn't doing anything about it. They were allowing it to happen unchecked and not really even treating it seriously as a sin that was going to destroy their Christian community, destroy their witness in the city of Corinth. This is a real problem. And in light of that and other sexual messes that this Corinthian church was facing, Paul gives a very clear message. Flee sexual immorality. Sex is for the covenant relationship of marriage only between a husband and a wife. That's what sex is for. And it's the only context that a Christian can engage in sex. So you have to run away from anything that would hint at anything other than that. And they also haven't done well at uh, the issue of idolatry. 
worshiping the true God only. See, we saw a couple chapters ago that there are some people within the church who are going to these uh, feasts at the temples of other gods, and it, it looks to people watching like they're actually worshiping those other gods. And in light of that kind of failure to, uh, in the realm of idolatry, Paul is very clear in a directive there too. Flee from idolatry. You can only worship the true God who's revealed in Jesus Christ. You have to run away from anything that would hint at anything other than that. And now these two issues, sexual immorality and idolatry, they come together in this particular issue of head covering, and it carries implications for both of those big issues. A woman in Corinth who is praying or prophesying in the church with an uncovered head could be communicating that she was sexually loose or that she was sexually unfaithful. And that would bring disgrace and dishonor to her husband. Or she could be communicating that she was like one of the pagan priestesses in these other temples. And that would, again, bring dishonor or disgrace to God. Similarly, men in Corinth who were praying or prophesying in the church uh, had to be careful to avoid communicating by their attire that they were like the pagan priests who had to kind of cover their heads every time they offered a, a, a sacrifice or an offering or something like that. If they did that, that would bring dishonor, disgrace to God. So we're starting to put the pieces together here, right? We look at what is being said, and what Paul is saying is that Christian men and women need to uh, uh, reflect our God-given distinctions in the way that we worship together. And in particular focus is the idea of headship and head covering. Why that's being said is that the wrong attire can communicate the wrong message. This is particularly true when it comes to sexual immorality and uh, worship of the one true God alone. So we're starting to put the pieces together here, and now we're in a better spot to think about how we can apply this passage today in our context. Now, if you do uh, any search on 1 Corinthians 11 and you look at the first half, at least, of the chapter, you're going to see that there's lots of different opinions on how this should be uh, uh, obeyed and, and applied in our context today. So we have to think really carefully about how to do this. When we come to a passage that is difficult for us, uh, we have to keep two things in mind. The first is that some passages are difficult for us because it's hard for us to understand them because we don't have the same cultural background as the original readers and the original writer. When that's true, we have to work really hard to try to understand not only what is being said, but also why it's being said. That's what we try to do so far today. But the other thing that's very important for us to keep in mind is that some passages are hard for us, not because we don't understand them, but because we don't like them. And they go against what we feel is right or what we think is true. And when that's the case, this is really important for us to allow the Bible to correct us and to reform us. We believe that we sit under the authority of Scripture. We don't stand over Scripture saying this is what it's allowed to say and what it's not allowed to say. We seek very hard to sit under the authority of Scripture to allow it to teach us, to allow it to reform us, and teach us what it means to live in obedience to Christ. So we take a passage like this, and how do we uh, obey the teaching of this? How do we apply the teaching of this in a way that makes sense in our cultural context without simply doing something that doesn't have meaning for us? Maybe you've heard uh, the story of a newly married young woman who was always very careful to prepare uh, her roasts the same way her grandmother did. She had seen her grandmother make tons of roasts, and she was really anxious to, uh, to uh, impress her new husband and to impress their guests and reflect uh, well on their new family. And so she did everything exactly like she saw her grandmother do it. 
and uh, her husband, one day they were having company, and, and her husband was watching her in the kitchen, and, and he noticed that right before she put the roast in the pot, uh, or in the pan, she cut off one end and then put it in there. And he thought, well, I don't want to stir up trouble, but I'm curious, why did you cut the end off of the roast? And she said, well, I, I don't know exactly. Maybe it has something to do about adding moisture to it or something like that. I don't know exactly what it is, but, but my grandmother always did it that way, and so I'm going to do it that way too. I want this to be the best roast that, that you've ever had and the best roast that our family has ever had. And so he said, okay, that's fine. But it got her to thinking, why am I doing this? And so the next time she saw her grandmother, she asked about it. Like, so why do you cut the end off the roast before you put it in the pan? And she kind of laughed. And she said, oh, it's because my pan is really small. I had to cut it off or it wouldn't fit in there. Right? It doesn't make sense for us to just do things without meaning, right? We as Christians are called to do, uh, to live in obedience to God. And the practices that we do when we gather together need to have meaning and purpose behind them. Now, we realize that in our culture, head covering doesn't communicate a whole lot, does it? Maybe it communicates a fashion statement. Maybe it communicates a sports loyalty or something like that. But, but really, there's not a whole lot that it does uh, tend to communicate. And that's not true everywhere, though. There are parts of the world today that head covering still does communicate quite a bit. Now, for us, we see a woman with a veiled head or a covered head, and we might think that this is actually something that looks, makes it look like she is kind of uh, unequal or that she is somehow uh, kind of suppressed or something like that. But it's interesting that for some of these women, this is actually a sign of their honor as a woman and their honor in their part of a family. For them, this isn't a sign of inequality. This isn't something that they don't want to do. They cover their heads as a sign of their, their honor before their family. It's a similar kind of context to what we see uh, in, in the biblical context. Now, Paul's concern in this passage is that women don't bring shame to their husbands by their behavior on the platform, so to speak, we could say, in a worship service, either by communicating sexual looseness or by communicating worship of other gods or by communicating that they're throwing off the distinction and the roles that God has given them. And the parallel concern for men is that they don't bring shame to Christ by their behavior in a worship service, by either communicating sexual immorality, or by communicating worship of other gods, or by communicating that they're trying to throw off the distinct role that God has given men in um, the Christian community, in his created order. So for us to apply this passage well today, we have to focus on how those things are communicated and upheld today, and in particular with a view toward attire, since that's the focus of this chapter. So I want to offer three things as we think about how to um, apply this passage in our context. The first one is this. When we worship, our clothing and our actions should celebrate the distinct ways that God has made us as men and women. Men and women are both created in the image of God. We are together redeemed by Christ and brought into this new community of faith. But that doesn't mean that we're the same. We are still created with distinction. God has made us different, and that difference is a really good thing. Now, we live in a cultural context where everyone is told that they can be whoever they feel like they are and to kind of live out those feelings and identify themselves in light of how they feel they are. And so, for example, a biological man who feels, identifies more like a woman than as a man would be encouraged to live out those feelings and to uh, play that out in the way they dress, in the way they do their hair, makeup, and even to potentially do surgery or have um, uh, enhancements, those kind of things. Now, for a Christian, 
we have to communicate that that's not how we believe God has made us. It's important for us in a context like that of gender confusion that we as Christians communicate that we are made in the image of God as men and women and with distinct roles as men and women. So, for example, if I got up to preach and I was wearing a dress, that would go against the teaching of this passage. It would communicate that I was in line with the cultural values of of gender confusion rather than the clear biblical concept that men and women are created distinct with distinct roles before him. Now, I realize that in a group this size, uh, there will be people in a culture like ours that won't like to hear that. But it is the clear biblical teaching. If, if Christians simply kind of acquiesce the gender confusion of our culture, we're actually going to end up bringing shame to the God who has created us unique in his image as men and women. We show that we reject the great way that God has created us in favor of a new way of our choosing. And really, a big part of what's behind all of this is that we've lost a sense of who we are. That's where a lot of this gender confusion really is coming up. If I don't know that I am someone who's created in the image of God as I am, as a man, or if you're a woman, that you are created in the image of God as a woman, if I don't find my identity in in Christ redeeming me to be a son of God, or if you're a woman, a daughter of God, a daughter of the king, then we've totally lost a sense of who we are. And of course, we're going to search for that wherever we might try to find it. But if you're looking for your identity in anything other than who God has made you to be and who he is making you to be in Christ, of course you're going to be confused and lost. So when we gather to worship, our clothing, our actions should maintain and celebrate the distinct roles that God has made us in as men and women. The second thing as we apply this passage is this. When we worship, our clothing and our actions should maintain biblical sexual values. The Bible teaches very clearly that that sex belongs in the covenant relationship of a husband and wife in marriage and only within that relationship. And so the way that we dress, the way that we act in worship services and throughout the week, of course, should reflect that. So, for example, for a woman to get on the platform to sing or pray or read scripture or something like that with a very low-cut top or the very short skirt, she would be communicating something that is against the sexual values that God has given us as a church. She's communicating either sexual availability or at least trying to gain sexual attention from anyone who sees her and not simply from her husband. This ends up being a disgrace in the community of faith. That, too, would go against the teaching of the passage. So the way that we dress, the way that we act in worship settings, it can bring glory to God and glorify him, or it can detract and make it look like we're not true worshipers of God, that we adopt the values of the culture around us rather than who God has made us to be and following biblical values. Okay, the third thing is this. When we worship, we do everything for the glory of God. This is incredibly important. We have to be very conscious about communicating this throughout our whole worship service. So when our worship team leads worship, they are not trying to draw attention to their amazing singing voice or to their amazing musical talents or anything like that. And they're very conscious about it. What they want is for you to see past them and to be thinking about God and worshiping him the whole way. And they pray toward this end. We gather Sunday mornings before the service and and before practice, and we pray toward that end. A typical prayer is something like this. God, please remove the distractions so that people don't see us, but they focus on you, their attention's on you, and they worship you in every single moment of that service. That's what we want. Because anything less than that is drawing praise to humans rather than the God who's created us. It's a totally reversed picture. 
And the same thing when I'm preaching. If my goal in preaching is to have you say, oh, that guy's really good at the end of the service, I've totally failed in my purpose as a preacher. What, what my goal has to be every single Sunday is for you to walk out saying, God is amazing. I want to follow him no matter what. I mean, that's the goal, right? Because who cares what I have to say? What does God's word say? And how do we apply this in our lives today? How do you go home today with a passage like this and continue to live by this? What does it mean to walk faithfully with Christ day in and day out? That's the heartbeat of our worship services. And if it's anything other than that, we've totally failed. When we gather to worship, we strive to bring glory to God more than anything else. This is a huge opportunity for us. When we gather as a church on Sunday mornings, the way we worship together matters. It really does. We're called to worship God in a way that brings him glory and honor. And that means we have to remove anything that would distract from that, anything that would bring dishonor or disgrace to his name, anything that would bring shame into the Christian community. It means we have to root out anything that confuses our soul worship of God and makes it look like we worship something else. It means rooting out anything that would send the wrong message about our sexual values. It means rooting out anything that would draw attention to humans as opposed to attention to the God who's revealed in Jesus Christ. We want everything to communicate that we are followers of Jesus and we will choose to follow him no matter what the culture around us does, no matter what the people around us do. We will follow him no matter what and we will find our identity in who he has made us to be and who he is making us to be through the power of his spirit and the image of his son. That's what we're about. When we worship, we worship to the glory of God. And so as we close this service today, we're going to sing a very simple song. It's called the doxology. Some of you will know it, but it's pretty easy to pick up. The words will be on the screen too. But it's a, it's a, it's a simple, powerful song that refocuses our attention. We are followers of God. May praise always go to him who has made us and who has revealed himself in his son, Jesus. Please pray with me as we prepare to, to close this service this morning. God, I pray that you would make us worshipers of you. And and as we gather together as a community, I pray that you would help us to, to demonstrate again and again that we are made in your image and we are remade in the image of your son and that we can find who we are in him and only in him. And God, I pray that you would remove any distractions from the worship services that we as we gather. I pray that you'd remove confusion and make it very clear that we are here for your glory and for your honor. God, where we do things that bring dishonor to the Christian community and dishonor to your name, God, please convict us of these and change our hearts, change our practices that we'd be more faithfully worship and glorify your name. We pray this in the name of your Son, who has rescued and redeemed us. Amen.